You're listening to In Real Life. I'm Emily. And I'm Kim Zilla. And here we are in Studio B. <laughs> the lovely scenic Studio B. Um. <laughs> Where we're going to be, uh, we're going to be doing a phone call. This is our first podcast phone call. Of the summer season. Of the season. summer season. Sure is, yeah. Who is it that we're going to be talking to, Emily? Well, I'm so glad you asked. Um, because... <laughs> <laughs> well... <laughs> I'm so glad you asked. Uh, we are going to be talking with Anna Crea, who is, gosh, so many things. She is a um, social activist. Um, she is a member of the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence of New Orleans. The The Big Easy Sisters Ooh. is what their chapter or their house is That's called. That's a great name. Mm-hmm. Um, That's awesome. The Big um, Easy Sisters. She is... She's a very accomplished academic with a couple master's degrees and a PhD under her belt um, in media studies and um, sort of anthropological fields. Mm -hmm. Um, And she's also just a very intelligent, uh, critical thinking a persistent online presence who um, I think does a lot for furthering a lot of social justice and advocacy causes. Oh, yeah. And actually, um, she's one of the reasons why I got into social justice and advocacy as well. I sort of um, got oh. bitten by the, the social justice bug through her when yeah. I was 14. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. Does she know that this is the reason, like that you got into social justice because of her? I'm not sure if she does or not. I feel like I must have told her at some point. I feel like she probably knows. Um, but yeah. Well, this is going to be a nice reunion. <laughs> this is great. I haven't talked to her in a really long time, but I'm, I'm yeah. really excited too. Yeah. And we've got a lot of topics uh, that we're going to be approaching today. Mm-hmm. So um, we're going to uh, talk about we're incels. Gonna, we're going to talk about incels. We're going to talk about the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. And then you also mentioned uh, how we're going to close up this little act is a little bit of a, let's talk about snacks, baby. Sorry, Raphael, that you couldn't be here, but we've got a special guest for Let's Talk About Snacks. Yeah. And that's Crawfish Boils. I feel like I have to sing it just for him because he's not here. All right. This is for you, Raphael. Let's talk about snacks, baby. Let's talk about (laughs) you and me. That's adorable. (laughs) That's so cute. Plus, Emily, I have something exciting to tell you. What's that? We got a new digital postcard from Uncle Traveling Nils from Bear Island. Oh, so exciting. And I thought, you know, in the past, we get these digital postcards. Mm -hmm. I'm calling them that because it's an email. No, it sounds, it's a digital postcard. Okay. (laughs) So we get these digital postcards, which include pictures and updates from our in real life puppets uh, off the coast of Norway uh, on Bear Island, where they're on a meteorological center meteorological center meteorological but i thought we should just add a little bit of a voice uh to uncle traveling nils so i uh asked aaron from minneapolis uh if you guys have been listeners of our radio show um you'll know aaron from minneapolis um as one of our earlier listeners uh he uses a 
text-to-voice translation system because mm-hmm. he can't use uh, his own voice. So I thought, what better way than using using the voice of Aaron from Minneapolis? So I asked if he had one with a um, Norwegian accent. He did not. He had the choice between British mm-hmm. and American. Yeah. Um, so I think he used a little bit of a... American slash British. I don't know. It yeah. sounds. It's. It sounds. It sounds right. Nice. It sounds good. sort of a Mid Atlantic. Uh, no. You'll understand. Okay. You'll. You'll. Yeah, hear. yeah. So there we go. Let's get started. Let's get started. Let's go. Settle in, guys. Dial that phone. Woo. My name is Anna Kriya. Uh I'm. 31 years old, um, and I'm a recovering academic, uh, which, <laughs> by which I mean uh, I spent most of my 20s working on um, two master's degrees and a PhD. I studied anthropology and folklore, which is sort of a cultural anthropology um, for one of my masters, and cinema and media studies for another, which is where I sort of got interested in uh, online culture and specifically how things like gender and sexuality and race are sort of understood and negotiated in online spaces. Um, And then I did my PhD in culture and performance studies, which is sort of this hybrid of cultural anthropology and media studies. Um, I thought I was going to be a professor and I've worked as a professor uh, for a while, but I, I call myself a recovering academic because I've sort of decided that what I'm really passionate about is the work of social justice. And that means working with people Um, on the ground who are disadvantaged, people who maybe don't have access to the kinds of college education um, but still need to understand and be engaging with these ideas. So what does that look like now? Uh, Well, one of the big things I do is the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, um, which is, I know if you see pictures of us, we probably seem like we're just a bunch of drag queens. (laughs) But um, And and in some ways, um, we are that, but we're also a lot more than that. We're a community service organization, uh, international and national and local uh, organization with chapters in 85 different communities, 30 countries around the world um, and yeah it's a it's a pretty big organization and our purpose is to I'm gonna give you the official tagline of our organization which is to promulgate universal joy and expiate stigmatic guilt whoa oh <laughs> <laughs> well, let me I'll, I'll break I'll, let me I'll pull that, that down my a little thesaurus bit. yeah <laughs> Yeah, well, sorry, and, and maybe I didn't start out the best way, but to break this down, we're a group of 21st century queer nuns who serve our community through things like, uh, by, by engaging with our communities, by doing uh, outreach for LGBT groups, for homeless shelters, for youth outreach programs, for sexual health, uh, other public health initiatives as well. Um, and queer-friendly churches and things like that. So you see us dressing up and having a lot of fun, but what we're also doing is raising money. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Um, all, every, all the money we raise goes directly back into our communities. Uh, like I said, supporting vulnerable groups of people, um, people who need it. And we're doing that through this sort of um, what, I, what we would call serious parody. Okay, so it's like a parody of the Catholic Church and the, and the nuns, but also it's got a serious purpose of serving the people and doing public outreach. 
Um, and if you'll if you'll let me start, if I'm talking too much, but I'll no. go, I'll go through like a, okay, like let me give you paint your little picture. So <laughs> this organization has been around since 1979, and the way it started was in San Francisco. Um, during that time, they felt that there's a large gay community in the Castro, and they felt that the Catholic Church was not responding to the needs of that gay community. Um, they had this new disease that was affecting a lot of people. They had they were dealing with stigma from their friends, from their neighbors, um, and the Catholic Church, in their minds, was essentially turning their backs on shutting their doors on that community and saying, if you're gay, we don't want you. And they thought, this is not very Christian of them. This is not what, what Catholicism should be. So to parody that, these three gay men in 1979 put on nuns' habits and walked the streets ministering, what's what they called it, ministering mm-hmm. to the public, passing out pamphlets about um, safe sex, about, uh, you know, tolerance, about loving each other, regardless of whether you fit into social norms, um, things like that. And it was, and it started out as a very pointed uh, criticism of the Catholic Church. And then, of course, there were death threats, uh, because Ooh, you don't really? parody the Catholic Oh, yeah, because you don't parody the Catholic Church without, you know, having some backlash. Right. And so the next year, they put on this white face, this sort of clown makeup, along with the nun's habits, and that was to conceal their identities. But they also committed to this purpose of, you know, there's a, there's a saying in Catholicism that you're not Catholic or you're not a nun uh, because you believe or because of your faith, but because you do the work, that work being serving your community. Mm-hmm. And they said, okay we're going to be nuns and we're going to do the work of serving this community, our community, our LGBT community that has been neglected by the Catholic church. So that's where this idea of serious parody comes from, um, that you can, you can parody, you can protest the Catholic church doing this clown face and the nuns outfit, but also uh, have a very serious purpose of saying there are people in need and we're going to help them. Are you usually going to events? Uh, are these parades? Um, what? What? How? How does this come out? I know you were talking in the seventies that it was um, that you would just come out to the streets and kind of give out condoms and and talk. Um, but but how does this end up uh, happening? Right. Well, throughout the eighties and nineties, as the organization grew and, and new chapters sprung up around the country, um, they they did a lot of different things. They started having parades in San Francisco. Uh, They were big when pride parades first started happening. They were always part of the pride parades. Uh, And they did things like bingo nights, um, which would raise money. Drag bingo, if you're you're part of the queer community, I think you've probably attended a drag bingo at some point in your life. Totally. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You've attended a drag bingo, Emily? Oh, sure. Of course. You're talking like this is, uh, where where are my drag bingo games? There's a great drag bingo. We talked to a woman, Linda, who hosts drag bingo in New York. She was on our show a few years ago. Can we go to a Yes, of course. Okay. No, we have to. It's very cool. (laughs) You should. Yeah. Um, That's, that's, how it started different houses that's what we call these different chapters different houses mm-hmm. they have different types of events but bingo is pretty standard um and the participation in pride is pretty standard i'm part of the big easy sisters of perpetual indulgence <laughs> which is a new orleans chapter i know it's a big easy the sisters, big easy right? sisters i love it <laughs> that's terrific <laughs> yeah um and so we 
we do a few different things. We we do participate in parades. There are a lot of parades in yeah. New Orleans, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> but we also have um, monthly bingo nights and uh, beer bust, which um, are a beer bust is when you sort of you take over part of a bar and you say, okay, for the next three hours you can pay ten dollars and have all you can drink beer or you know a well drink or something like that, and then mm-hmm. all the proceeds go to charity. Oh, okay, hundred percent. Yeah. Um, so it's just a way, and, and, and while we're there, you know, we're talking to people where, um, I mean, if you want to get serious about it, you say we're ministering to the community, you know, mm-hmm. where, where people can talk to us, they can take pictures with us, they can have a good time, they can ask for our advice, they can seek uh, emotional support or affirmations. Um, and we also have information that we can hand out uh, involving like prep. For example, mm-hmm. um, can yeah, you talk about prep things. a little bit, um, just for listeners that may not know what that means? Yeah, I've been seeing advertisements for it all over the New York City subways right now, which I think is really great um, that mm-hmm. that yeah. word is getting out there so much. But I, I think many people are just starting to hear of it. I just many learned people... about it from Dan Savage podcast. Oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, prep is a prophylactic which can prevent the spread of HIV. Um, so it's something you should absolutely talk to your doctor about, especially if you uh, are having sex uh, actively. Um, it's a it's a great thing for the community. It's not 100% infallible, but it's a great uh, place to start in terms of protecting yourself. Yeah. Who are the sisters within um, the the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence? Um, are they? Are they mostly part of the transgender community, gay community, LGBT, fill in the blank with the acronyms? Um, can you talk about just who is a member of this group? Yeah, the, the vast majority are part of the LGBT community, um, and but that's not a requirement to join. What, mm-hmm. The only thing that's a really a requirement is that you're committed to the cause and to the organization, which does serve primarily LGBT populations, but not exclusively. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as the actual breakdown, it's mostly men. It, I, I often, <laughs> uh, as, as a cisgender woman um, in the organization, I often have people come up to me or people from visiting houses uh, say, oh, you know, it's, it's so interesting to see a cis sister a sister. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, because uh, it is unusual. Our house, the Big Easy Sisters, I think has one of the larger um, numbers of cisgender women uh, in the country. I, I believe we have five or six oh, wow. uh, in our ranks. Yeah, which is which is pretty high out of about thirty active members. Um, so that that's that's pretty high comparatively. Uh, but. It, there's no there's no official rule that bars um, anyone who wants to be part of the, these communities from joining, other than you know like I said you, there's a willingness and a commitment to the cause and to the organization um, that that must that that's the most important thing. When you go out to parades, um, do you are there different themes that you're going out with at different times um, that you're um, not only a, a topic but a but a theme or are you going just the theme is that your sisters uh, dressed in drag um well every sister sort of comes up with her own aesthetic mm-hmm. uh we we all have the the sort of the white face and the, the exaggerated makeup but within that there's a lot of variability and um sort of part of your 
your first couple of years in the organization is trying out different things and finding your own personal style. Mm-hmm. As far as there being a theme, it, it really, and that's, that's a hard question to answer. In, in different houses, there may be different answers. Um, so I don't want to speak for the whole national international organization. Uh, as far as the Big Easy Sisters goes, there are times that we might have, um, like, for example, um, the Mother's Day tea, you know, in which yeah, case you, yeah. you might choose to wear something that's a little bit more mm-hmm. like a Sunday dress or something like that. Um, <laughs> but it's I'm not sure if it's really a theme so much as a suggestion. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and as far as what we wear, when we do what we call bar ministry, which is when we have the things like the bingo nights or the, the beer bust, or we end up, we actually just, go around the French Quarter in New Orleans bar hopping and, and passing out information and and so forth. Um, those are those tend to be flexible. We can wear whatever we want, and it, that's sort of each individual sister's t- time to express herself and her individuality in what she wears. Um, then we have formal events. Uh, for example, the Mardi Gras balls in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, yeah, and when we do, we might perform or we might have some sort of official role as escorts or greeters or something like that uh and at that point we would wear our formal wear which is a traditional nun's habit mm-hmm. is it, and it it really is it looks just like a traditional nun's habit uh it, it's pretty similar yeah it's wow. long sleeve oh, cool. black um full robe with the white collar and we always wear our coronet and veil mm-hmm. Yeah. Is there, does there feel like there's still pushback? I know you mentioned um, having to wear white face in order to protect your identities. Um, is the Catholic Church, Church still charged over kind of this, you know, this mockery? I, I'm saying that in a positive way. Um, the yeah, parody. The, parody, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the original founders of the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence have been deemed heretics. Oh, that's the, nice. The, yeah. <laughs> cool. <laughs> Congratulations. Um, yes, the, the Catholic Church uh, is, is not in favor of what we do, um, but that's, that's really neither here nor there. The mm-hmm. important thing is we are helping people. Mm-hmm. And, the, and people that watch, I saw that on, online that there were several roles, like the sisters, um, but then there was one that was referenced as guards. Um, <laughs> If you can kind of talk about that a little bit. Absolutely. The guards are the masculine persona of the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. Sometimes we nickname them the misters of Perpetual Indulgence. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But no, the the guards are there. uh, They they have a much more subdued sort of um, makeup style. And they they tend to be associated with the more leather daddy kind of look, Uh, if you you know what I mean. But that's not... Not always, you know, and um, but the main thing is that they're the more masculine persona, and they're there to protect the sisters and to keep the sisters on track. Um, so if, for example, we're walking in a parade or something and there's a, a group of protesters, the guards might be the ones to go interact with or stand in front of them mm. uh, or whatever while the sisters focus on the community who is there um, that That's needs support. interesting, yeah. yeah. Hmm. So I wanted to ask a little bit about, like, you've 
you've been involved in social justice and um, advocacy pretty much as long as I've known you, uh, which I realized is 16 years. <laughs> ah! oh, wow. oh my gosh, I feel old. <laughs> no, <laughs> me too. Um, but I mean, I know I know a little bit about like how you, you did stuff when you were younger, but if you could talk a little bit about um, like how you first got involved in uh, social justice and in sort of LGBT advocacy and rights um, and how, you know, how long you've been doing it, I guess. Uh, absolutely. I guess that, that goes all the way back to middle school or high school for me. Um, I was born and raised in North Carolina, and uh, my father was gay, uh, which, uh, Emily, I know you, you spent yep. a lot of time at my house. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> As a kid. Um, and, but, but I won't say that he's the only reason I got involved in social justice activism. I think for me it was... Um, during the Bush presidency, uh, I remember, I think I was like 11 or 12 years old, and I, this was back in the age of zines, mm-hmm. you know, like before there was like a big social media thing, like people would make zines and pass them out, and someone handed me a zine, and there was a picture on the front, you know, Jesus and, and a bomb, and it said, would Jesus bomb Afghanistan? And I just had this like moment, I was like 11 years old, and I went, whoa. Well, because I knew that I knew that my my parents were Democrats, and I knew that um, you know we had this this sort of le- this liberal versus conservative thing, but I hadn't really thought about hey, someone my age could put something together and put out a message like this, mm. and it really inspired me. Um, and I think that's that's probably the moment that I decided I needed to get more involved. Uh, and then it wasn't long after that that I went to my first pride event um and emily i'm flashing back now to times that we went to pride together yeah me too (laughs) (laughs) um but it was a moment of also like meeting other people that wasn't just anti-war uh but there were those people there and was like hey all of these different social issues are actually linked and there are people there's a community here it doesn't have to be something you just talk about at the dinner table or you know after you look at a tv report it can be something that is um, building a community with other like-minded people. Like yeah. it can be a thing that unites people itself mm-hmm. and standing up for yourselves and standing up for what you believe in. That's so true. And that's what's, I feel like the most important thing going on now, um, just with how our political climate is and how social media is kind of changing the course of how politics are run, where it's this kind of divisive conversations that you have with your old high school friends and your, you know, co-workers and your conservative uncle about your side and their side. And it becomes so divisive and it becomes not a place where everybody is kind of sharing their ideas, but your side and my side and trying to kind of throw the facts back and forth at each other. And what you're doing is kind of back and it was interesting because we we had a guest that talked about meat space and how important it is to meet in real life and do things with people and with a community. And um, it sounds like what you're doing is 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 so involved in the community. And um, is that is that on purpose? Do you guys do things online also, or um, I mean, have you always kind of felt connected to doing things in real life? Um, that's such an interesting question. Is uh... 
Yeah, I mean, I think it started for me as like this in real life community engagement and, you know, here's here's meeting other people, here's getting involved, here's actually doing something. If you mm-hmm. feel helpless watching the news, you know, here yeah. you can, um, you know, hold hands or, you know, link with other people um, and, and realize that you're not alone and you can help each other in that way. And that's meaningful. Uh, as far as me personally, I, I then, you know, after that period of, you know, during high school and, and Bush and everything uh, and being involved in that way, I went to college, and as I mentioned earlier, I spent a, a lot of time just completely de- devoted to my studies, to becoming the you know master's, PhD, all mm-hmm. of that. Mm-hmm. And during during that period, uh, we also had the rise of social media. I think I got a Facebook account my my second year in college, mm-hmm. um, and at that point, I was living away from all those wonderful people that I'd met in person as a teenager. And so so Facebook and social media became my means of keeping in contact with them uh, and, and keeping those ideas alive and, and talking about those ideas, um, continuing to, to have that community. But now it was happening in an online space. And I became, especially as I got more and more isolated throughout graduate school, I became even more... Uh, devoted to what some people call clicktivism. Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's yeah. that's the thing I was wondering. I mean, because you were so involved in your academic life, you know, if you if you if you felt withdrawal from that visceral the the energy that you get when you're when you're feeling that world outside and the clicktivism uh, did it work for you? Yeah, I mean, I, I have mixed feelings about clicktivism as someone who does media studies and social justice activism, because mm-hmm. on on the one hand, I think clicktivism is really important. Um, we spend a huge amount of time online as a culture, and particularly the millennial generation. We, we spend hours and hours a day on social media. So if you have people on social media talking about social justice issues, then you're raising awareness. People are more tuned in. People are more engaged. It's not something that's just happening in the abstract. It's not something they have. They only encounter if they go looking for it, you know, reading the news or um, what have you. It's important in that regard to get to keep people invested and engaged and um, aware of these issues. However, it has limitations because if you think that you've made a significant contribution by sharing an article for example, about children in concentration camps, um, what have you actually done to stop those, to, to, to try to stop that practice? Right. And the answer is not very much. It may, it, not nothing. You haven't done nothing. You've helped raise awareness and you've put out that message. However, it can, it can lead to a sense of complacency of, you know, oh, well, I published this meme or I, or I posted this article. Um, I don't need to call my senator. Right. Yeah, I think that's been that's been my concern is that it it seems like like I'm I'm witnessing this sort of outpouring of outrage um that's happening online in the wake of the most recent presidential election like you know however however long that that wake has been now. Um but I'm I get it, it yeah. <laughs> um <laughs> but I I get concerned that that is taking the place of actual action, that it feels enough to people like they're doing something and like they're participating in a conversation 
enough to just to just post something um, that it's like taking the place of actual action. But yeah, I, I but, think that's a really valid concern. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, I, I don't want to say it's it's not any form of action because it's also I, I do think it's important for people to be collectivist. Mm-hmm. It just can't, it can't stop there. Right. Yeah, because it is. I mean, like when I think about how many issues I become aware of from, I mean, for example, the incels thing, I I became aware of that by just knowing you and seeing your Facebook post about it. And there are a lot of issues like that that I become aware of by knowing someone who posted an article. And I went, oh, holy cow, I had no idea that this existed. Um, what an enormous problem. Um, and that's, you know, there I'm, I'm one more person who's aware of the problem. It's just like, yeah, hopefully then we start taking the next steps to getting out there and yeah, doing it, something about it. Yeah, it's important to remember that um, a lot of people, if not the majority, uh, our age, uh, by which I mean millennials mm-hmm. and younger, um, get their news primarily from social media. Yeah. They're not going to NewYorkTimes.com, you know, or, or opening a newspaper and, and and reading the stories. They're scrolling through their news feeds. So what their friends post is the the news that they're getting. It, it is the news they're aware of. Right. So that's why I say don't, don't totally discount it because um, if you think, oh, well, posting this won't help anything, well, then that's that may be three or four people who aren't informed about that who would have been otherwise. Right. Yeah. yeah, it's a really good point. I actually um, hadn't thought about it that I way. I think it's important also, though, to just make sure that what you're reading, you know, I mean, for me, it's that I'm I'm getting, I know my audience. I know who's sharing these articles, and I'm looking at the source of what the article is. You know, it's like you have to do a little bit of extra work to determine you're reading this article. You find out, like, okay, this, this seems valid. It's coming from a valid source. Is this making me enraged enough to want to participate in the outside world about it. Um, But there is a tiny little bit of homework, I think, that goes in between. And then I start, you know, prioritizing. Like right now, you know, I'm reading an article about, you know, elephants. And it's like, I can't, I can't read these articles about elephants, right? I'm sorry, elephants, but I have to deal with the kids in <laughs> concentration camps. <laughs> that's yeah. what I have to, that's I'll get what to I have you to later, be. Elephants. Get... <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, that's well, real. I think it, it is, it is real. And, but I also think it's important to not just post articles when you're outraged enough, you know, um, one thing we can try to do is, is signal boost uh, the positive actions people are yeah. taking, they're really doing, you know, instead of saying, isn't, instead of only posting about how terrible it is, mm. um, for example, the situation yeah. at the border, maybe post about how there have been protesters camped outside the ICE facility in Portland for a week now. Yes. Yeah. You know, and there there are, like, focus on the people who are doing meaningful things to try to address this. And if you can't do it yourself, at least signal boost the stories mm. of people who are. Right. I like and to, I, uh, and that, sorry. yeah. <laughs> we all just, I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> no, and I, yeah, and I have another segue into the incel thing too, but I yeah. don't want to cut you guys off. Well, uh, I just, I mean, we can, yeah, we can wrap up and go straight into that. I just, I think it's that is so important for so many reasons, like to post the po- the positive actions of people who are are you know, for example, protesters that are camped um, outside the border. Uh, for one, I think it it sort of like 
can bolster those of us that are looking at all these problems and feeling overwhelmed and thinking there's nothing I can do. Mm-hmm. Um, here's an example of someone who's doing something. You know yeah. what they say, like, action yeah. is the antidote to despair. <laughs> so there's that. And then there's also, it's an idea for people who are like, I'm angry, I'm outraged, I want to do something. Yeah. What do I do? Oh, hey, those people are doing that. I can do that. And I feel like I, with that, I have specific audiences in mind. So I'm thinking the moms, the aunts, the neighbors, Mm -hmm. the people that, you know, I see what they're sharing kind of blindly. And I'm kind of responding back and saying, look, here's five Republicans that disagreed with what Trump had to say. That's for you. Oh, here's something that's going on that talks about, you know, what Jesus believed and how he was an accepting person. That's for you, my neighbor, you know, and this is for you. So I'm kind of trying to kind of challenge very passively with sound articles to challenge those people that have, that may have the wrong, the, the wrong message um, or an incorrect message, you know, and, and kind of push their beliefs a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's a great strategy. Uh, I, I also think it's important to remember that when we're talking about ideology, it's very hard to change someone's mind. It's it's very difficult so to reach them um, with a with something like that if they're not receptive to it on any level. If they you know if they're, if they're the person who's going to see the source that it came from and say, oh well, that's just the liberal media or that's fake news, it's very hard to get them to engage with that idea. However, it is absolutely useful to do so, not only because they might see it, whether or not they engage, whether or not it makes an impression on them, but you're also talking to the people that already agree with you but need to see that Mm. there's that groundswell of of support, Mm -hmm. that there's other people that feel like them. So a lot of times when I think about posting, I think I'm not really posting this for, for anybody who would disagree with it. I'm posting it so that the people who already would agree with it see that they're not the only ones. Yeah. No, that's, I think that that's, yeah, yeah, just as important. No, I, that, yeah. that's, that's something that I hadn't thought about before, because when I do see kind of that, the, the surge of a certain topic, I feel like that surge, you know, has recently happened and has been fairly successful. I think we're in the middle of it now, but with this whole child separation thing that you saw there was such a surge on social medias with, you know, how everyone thought this was so terrible. And it took a few days for, you know, the other parties to kind of find ways to kind of to ha- find a different avenue to to skew the story. But in general, I felt like I felt like because you saw so many posts, you're right, it it, it it kind of expanded it a little bit and and broadened the audience. Yeah. And it's I mean I wonder too. It's we know that uh, we know that many of our politicians are easily swayed um yeah. by ah, yeah. wanting <laughs> wanting their constituency to like them um and and to look like, you know, they're they're on the right side of things, you mm-hmm. know? I mean on on both sides of the aisle, I think. Um Yeah. And and so I wonder if like when you when everyone contributes posts like that, um and maybe a politician sees that groundswell happening on social media of outrage, they're like, well, you know, well, fuck, I'm going to get on this bandwagon and and I'm going to I'm going to join this and I'm going to champion this cause and then I'm going to be, you know, so it's like even if even if their motives for that are slightly less you gotta work than the system, pure, yeah. you got it. Yeah, exactly. You got to work the system. And I wonder mm-hmm. if that if that has the the ability to make a difference hmm. in that way. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think absolutely. Um, I think I think the more conversations that we have uh, about these issues, the better. Um, no matter which which side you know you're coming from, these these dialogues need to be happening. And as as far as them happening online, I think it's a good place to start. But um, maybe this is a segue to the incel thing. Yeah. You know, if if everything stays online, then nothing ever gets done in the real world. Mm-hmm. So it has to be it has to be a catalyst for for actual direct action. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is this is one thing that I think we've we've seen with the incel issue is that this is a group of men who are sort of dedicated to existing to finding their community online, and they don't seem very interested in in going beyond that. And because of that, they're they're constantly repeating each other's ideas and getting more and more entrenched in their own way of, of thinking about things. Yeah, they're all uh, drinking it, the Kool-Aid. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think you're absolutely right where it's like they, they get involved in their own groups, Reddit or 4chan or, you know, where they originated. And the more you read, the more they become your culture. And I and I read a few articles from um, incels that have kind of gotten out of that world. And that was exactly mm-hmm. how it started. Like, you know, it's like just reading through threads and then just like, okay, that I kind of understand. And then before you know it, you're in agreement with a lot of of what other other people are, are saying and, and talking about. Before you know it, you're, I- <laughs> you're an incel. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, and the profile of an incel is, is basically, you know, um, I don't know if you wanted to. Yes, please, if you can kind of walk us back a little bit. Yeah. So, so incel, um, is a, stands for involuntary celibate, uh, which is, we can parse out in a minute, (laughs) (laughs) but it's, it's basically an online community of men who are united by their inability to convince women to have sex with them. Um, and, and it starts out as, I think, you know, a certain type of maybe socially awkward uh, man who, for whatever reason, hasn't been lucky or hasn't achieved, you know, meaningful sexual relationships with women. And rather than thinking about ways that they might be able to improve their themselves, whether their, their physical or uh, appearance or just their their interactions with women they sort of take refuge in these online communities that say it's not your fault that you're not getting laid it's feminism's fault um because it used to be that you know women were basically chattel of their of their fathers and husbands and at that point you know it didn't matter if you didn't have the best physique or you know the whatever um you could still find a wife for you know Mm -hmm. and and now that's not that's not the case because women have too much agency i'm I'm sort of oversimplifying Mm -hmm. this but this is sort of one of the guiding ideas of of incel ideology or or at least the most toxic forms of incel ideology uh the idea that women exist primarily um for men's sexual pleasure and them having sexual agency is is the reason that these men are not having sex. That's and that's their philosophy, and that's what gets repeated over and over again in these online communities. Just like you said, Kim, a moment ago, um, and suddenly you start reading it, and everything's presented in absolutely logical terms. And 
I, I personally know that as an editor, you can make anything sound great if mm. you know how to phrase it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you, can <make> anything, <laughs> you, can, you can make anything seem matter of fact if you phrase it the right way. Yeah. So, and, and so you read, you know, hundreds of other men who have had the same troubles that you've had. And it's, and it's much easier, I think, to give in to this sense of, you know, helplessness and blame the women, blame society, um, rather than doing the work on yourself. Because doing work on yourself is difficult for, for anyone of any gender. Absolutely, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's always much easier to find an external source to blame. Then it's not your fault. Then right. you don't have to do any self-work or self-reflection. Could you talk about, like, the different um, categories that they kind of put people in? The Chads and the Beckys and the, the Stacys? Stacys, yeah. Oh man, uh, yes. <laughs> so, um, the incels have their own community online, and um, actually, from an anthropological background, one of the ways we define community is by shared folklore and particularly folk speech. So, folk speech is like slang terms and expressions that are used to both unite uh, a particular group and exclude others from that group. And so one of the things that the, the incels have done is they've created different categories of people. For example, the Chads and the Stacys are two of the most, um, I think, hated and uh, – what's the word I'm looking for? Um, no, I'll just go with hated. <laughs> <laughs> the, the Chads are sort of this masculine ideal, this someone who is successful and confident, who has – probably blonde hair and uh, chiseled abs. Um, they're the ones getting laid. Like, <laughs> they're the ones getting laid. And who are they getting laid by? The Stacys. And, and the Stacys are attractive, promiscuous women. Unattainable. Um, you could never get a Stacy. Una- you, yeah. well, I mean, the, the- you meaning like, quote, unquote, like what the incels are determining, their community are, would never be able to get an, a Stacy. Right. right. And it's very contradictory, though, because the Stacy is both the, the ideal that they would want and someone to be shamed and ridiculed, yeah. um, hmm. you know, that she, because she's promiscuous. Uh, and it, it's, it's completely contradictory. <laughs> but yeah. this idea that she won't have sex with you makes her a slut. Uh, yeah. And, and yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so that's one way that incel <laughs> ideology perpetuates itself. <laughs> yeah, you know, if you if you if your if your hatred of women and your expectations of them in terms of sex are in conflict, then I mean you're, you're just perpetuating your own right. uh, lack of, lack of sex. Um, so you have the Chads and the Stacys. Sometimes the Chads are talked about in like this very reverent way, like what you really want to be is a Chad. And there are whole um, subreddits devoted to men photoshopping themselves to look like a Chad. If only, I, if only I looked like this, you know, then I would get the woman. Um, That's kind of sad. But, yeah. then the, <laughs> uh, but nobody, nobody talks with reverence about Stacy. Stacy is always someone you hate um, be, because she's sexually attractive and not interested in you. Yeah. So therefore, she's terrible. Uh, and then, and then you get into even worse categories of um, women because you know women would be a term that has too much respect. Uh, so we they, they have terms like roasty and femoid. No, um, femoid, right? Oh, yeah. And the FHOs, the female humanoid organism. Female humanoid, yes. That's gross. Um, yeah, <laughs> like yeah. 
it's totally reducing a woman, yeah. you know, to, to a sexual object. Um, and and it, they like that because it gives them a sense of power. And these are men who, by and large, don't feel that they have power in society. They This comes out of the, the incels are part of a larger movement called men's rights activism or the men's rights movement, which really started in the late 90s as sort of a backlash against feminism. Um, and within that community, you have the, the pickup artists, the red pillars. Red that comes from the matrix, the idea that if you take the red pill, then you know that actually women have all the power and patriarchy doesn't exist. Would you consider this um, like a radical, like a radicalized group or almost like a hate group? I mean, I know uh, just with Toronto happening and that incident. Absolutely, it is a radical group, and I and I would be um, I would like to mention at this point that not everyone who identifies as an incel um, and and not everyone who identifies as a men's rights activist would advocate uh, violence against women. Um, the point is that some do, and they are often given a platform um, to express those views in these communities. But that doesn't mean that everybody you know uh, who identifies as part of that community is radical in that way. However, that said, there definitely are factions of these communities that are absolutely radical and certainly meet the definitions um, that we would use to define terrorism uh, and at least incitement to terrorism. That if you go to these uh, different chat rooms or these um, discussion boards, you, you find people advocating uh, not only violence against women in you know everyday domestic scenarios but also things like uh praising people like elliot rogers who killed six and wounded 14 in santa barbara in 2014 and and cited incel uh ideology as his reasons for that um or alec manassian who killed 10 people in toronto this year uh again because you know feeling that he was entitled to sex that he wasn't getting um and that sense of entitlement led him to to actually kill people so these discussion boards will will praise these shooters and advocate things like more shootings or um different forms of attacks on what they call normies or the chads and stacys uh if you will and they've even gone so far as to advocate throwing acid on people who are very attractive uh so that they are so that they would be forced to know what it's like to be unattractive and, and have to try to get laid. Oh, my God. Um, or, uh, or sabotaging safe sex initiatives. For example, poking holes in free condoms or um, liter- literally breaking into uh, condom machines uh, to do that. So the, yeah, wow. it's, it, and Yeah. And, and that, that really is what's happening on these threads. Um, and it's... And it's very difficult because the nature of these sites like 4chan and Reddit means there's also a lot of hyperbolic rhetoric, a lot of mm-hmm. exaggerated sarcasm, um, irony, people saying just the most outrageous, outlandish thing because they want to get boosted in the thread. You know, it's like where trolls live, up. right? I mean, it's and like it's all of the know. trolls together as a community. <laughs> yeah. And and someone might say, well, obviously I didn't actually mean, you know, go shoot everybody up. Can't you guys can't you guys take a joke? Can't you understand sarcasm? Uh, but the thing is, no, not everybody can. Yeah, yeah. Somebody is going to read that. Someone who's on the edge is going to read that and take it seriously. 
Right, which is why it's very difficult to police these communities, because mm-hmm. on the one hand, what you don't want is to set a precedent where you have law enforcement trawling message boards looking for any sign of dissent. I mean, yeah. as we see what's happening in our country as we become increasingly, right. uh, yeah, um, more fascist. Yeah, <laughs> uh, exactly. We, we, we don't want to normalize a situation in which, you know, anyone who disagrees is is could potentially find themselves the target of uh, an accusation of terrorism. Right. Um, at, at the same time, how do you tease out real threats from trolling? Yeah. And, and a lot of them live kind of in an online world. I mean, they're, this is a community that is more comfortable online than in real life in many ways, correct? Absolutely. Um, and I think that that's, you know, it kind of gets to what we were talking about earlier. Some people feel more comfortable online, and that fits the profile of an incel perfectly, right? Somebody who isn't ha- who isn't or hasn't had much luck uh, with women in in real life is probably going to be the type of person who's more comfortable interacting with others in online space. Yeah, and it's like you said that just com- compounds the problem because if we want to reach these individuals to sort of show them yeah. that. Uh, their ideas of women are are incorrect, right? Like, it's, right. it's harder to, it seems like the most effective way to dissuade them would be with, like, real-life examples and interactions, yeah. right? Like, having them interact yeah. with a woman to change their mind. But that's the difficult part is because it's such a, it's a community that's cut themselves off so much that it's like, how do you infiltrate this really isolated online community that yeah. Doesn't well, and part of what that community, what part of that what community is telling these men is that women are all the same. You don't need to get to know them as individuals because right. they're all the same. They're they're vapid. They're shallow. They they only have a specific narrow set of interests. Um, and it's it's not worth your time to try to get to know any of them because they won't have sex with you anyway. Mm-hmm. That's that's sort of one of the things that gets said in these communities and and one of the greatest ironies i think of this this whole thing is that the entire men's rights movement sees feminism as the enemy when especially contemporary feminism would be the first to say actually men need spaces where they can come together as men and talk about men's issues right they absolutely need that women need that too um a lot lots of different groups need uh what we call identity spaces where, where they can talk about issues that are important to them. Um, and feminism, I think, would be, like I said, the first to agree that that's something that men need. The that's irony, though, true. is yeah. that by creating this space online, instead of coming together to work through their issues as a group, you know, and maybe figure out how to deal with this problem, instead they feed each other's sense of resentment. Um, and they allow this resentment to fester until they've just embraced their helplessness. Yeah, and 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 all they can feel is bitter um, and and upset. They they don't instead of thinking of, of ways to move beyond it, they just sink down into it. Yeah, and they and they let themselves believe the message of the group, which gets affirmed by it being repeated in message after message, that there is no amount of self improvement that they could do that will actually improve their chances because the problem is not them, it's the women. Right. The problem is it's the women and it's feminism and it's society that allows women to have all these choices 
And that's the reason they're not getting laid, not that they need to do any personal work. Yeah. And this thing you're talking about, about like women, uh, contemporary feminism really championing these spaces for men to get together and talk about men's issues. It's it's really such a shame that that uh, that can't be embraced. What am I trying to say here? Like by the men's rights activists, because I on the on the one hand, like I can see all of these issues that are like men's issues Confusing that they face evolving. that I yeah. wish that. D- that I wish got more recognition um, stuff like you know how how so many men in our culture are raised you know not to show emotions because it's a weakness and not to talk about feelings and like um, you know not to uh, not to show any weakness with women and not to um, you know it's it's there are a lot of uh, sort of like emotional disadvantages that I think men are programmed with um, that I think do deserve attention, but it's like it's exactly what you're saying. Like feminism, contemporary feminism would be more than happy to give those issues attention. Um, it, it, it doesn't. It, it, it yeah, it's more than happy. It does. Yeah, it, it does it, exactly. It, <laughs> it is um, part of the conversation. When I was at UCLA, you know, I remember um, the Gender and Sexuality Conference. I was talking to some of the graduate students and professors who were currently reviewing applications and they were they were complaining that everybody who was applying for that major or that graduate program in women's studies wanted to talk about men's issues Hmm. so so feminism is doing this yeah um but the problem is uh, one of the first things you said you know is if they could just realize that but the thing is they won't because that would force them to engage with what feminism actually is instead of this idea this black and white you know feminists hate men yeah and that's an idea that has been around since the 70s it's very very hard for not just men but society to shake a lot of people still have this image of a feminist as you know someone who who burns her bra and um (laughs) cuts her hair you know absolutely short and and doesn't and is a lesbian probably you know um and the idea that that's what feminism is is obviously absurd but it's very hard to let go of stereotypes once they become deeply entrenched and that's the thing about the incel movement is it is deeply committed to a certain stereotype, a certain image of woman, uh, and it, it does not want its constituents to think beyond that right. because it would undo their entire movement. And maybe that's maybe that's the thing. I mean we're we're talking we're we're hoping that there's this this male feminist movement where they're evolving and understanding what we're frustrated about. But these are not the guys this this incel rebellion right here are are not the ones that are aren't they're not fully evolving with the times. I mean, it's a, I think it's almost a different conversation to, you know, the the guys that were that are in the world that don't know how to communicate as well or they don't know how to flirt now because is flirting going to get me in trouble like those guys. Um, but but these in these this incel group is a little bit more of a hate group, right? I mean, they're, I think they're a little bit more broken than just the general population of yeah. men's frustration with not being able to keep up with what we're looking for out of them. Yeah. 
that that's true. And and I will again caution that not all incels are are radical, you know. And some um, there there have been some incel groups that have, for example, banned any conversations about. Uh, Elliot Roger and Alec Manassian. Yeah. Know, the, the, um, oh. yeah. <laughs> so that there, there are groups of men who, I mean, maybe they're not approaching it from the right way, but at least they're not advocating violence, violence in the same right. way. Um, but at the same time, there are absolutely <laughs> groups that are advocating violence and that are advocating the the understanding that women are subhuman, and that is their terminology. Mm-hmm. Why is this just coming out now? I mean, besides the bombing in Toronto, I mean, this happened in 2014 and now we're, you know, we're seeing this happen in Toronto and now we're having the conversation. Is it because of the political climate and the right wing kind of thing, kind of bashing along with this anti-feminist movement, online communities? Do you have any thoughts? I'm confused on why yeah, this is I such think, a big thing right now. <laughs> well, for, for me, you know, I, um, as I've researched it, I think that it's been sort of gaining momentum since 2010, roughly, mm-hmm. uh, o- online. I became aware of it during the sort of Gamergate uh, phenomenon. Do you remember oh, when this, this yeah. happened? Mm-hmm. Um, when Anita Sarkeesian was uh, posting about misogyny in video games mm-hmm. and was viciously attacked online. Uh, had her personal address and uh, other personal details published and had to go into hiding. Um, I was involved in media studies. I was working on my master's at that point. And so I was, I was very tuned into it. So, so for me, I was sort of surprised when I realized that other people had not been, uh, that, that started, I guess, in 2013, 2014, um, and so I sort of thought people had been aware about it all this time. I didn't really think about the privilege that I had. Uh, you know, the reason that I was tuned into it was because I was involved in media studies and feminist studies. Uh, and so that's what my Facebook news feed was full of. Hey, mm-hmm. let me keep <laughs> <laughs> um, because those are who my friends are on Facebook. So I was aware of it. But as far to, to get to your question about like why is it happening right now? Um, I mean, yes, there was a terrorist attack, and media outlets were willing to call it a terrorist attack, which makes a huge, a huge difference. What what the media is willing to report on and what they're willing to call something uh, matters. Um, so that catches attention. But also, I think, like you said, the climate right now. You know, we we have a president who has um, openly bragged about assaulting women. This helps normalize a culture of misogyny and hatred of women and it sort of even if it doesn't uh make it fully safe for them to come out mm-hmm. uh in public and and profess these views that at least gives them a sense of security to know that a lot of other people feel like they do and it emboldens them right i mean i think we're seeing that with a lot of different issues right now i mean i know like um my my mom and and her wife have gotten to the point where in North Carolina they're like wow I never thought we would see the day when we would feel comfortable just like walking around holding hands you know and that's yeah. something that in the last several several years they've really gotten comfortable doing um and they're like that this is so amazing how great but then like right after the election um they they got uh, they, you know, they received an amount of backlash and they knew people, um, other gay women who 
got like hate messages um either people writing things on their car or or notes or stuff like that because people were feeling um safer coming out with these opinions um that had become sort of aberrant because our society as a whole um looked like it was it was moving forward um but then when we you know elect a leader who has the beliefs that they do it's like okay cool we're safe to talk about this again now um which i think is is actually one of the most dangerous and toxic things about trump as a president um i think they're all out there though right well that's what i'm saying but yeah. like but i think it's it's you i mean certainly it's about, we didn't him down enough <laughs> certainly it's about the stuff he's doing but so much of his threat i think is the stuff that he's normalizing um yeah. and the ideas yeah, that he's making true. more acceptable in the eyes of some people mm. Yes. I mean, you think about a few years ago, you know, if someone had said there are people wearing uh, Nazi insignia and marching in the streets, what the reaction would have been compared yeah. to what it is now. Um, and it's it's happened. It hasn't even happened gradually, but it's still happened. Uh, it, it's still become normalized to the point that we're like, well, yeah. Oh, yeah, They're sure. Nazis. Yeah, of course. Right. <laughs> if anyone so let's, can, yeah. let's, make, let's make fun of their tiki torches, you know. Right. Um, and, and humor is absolutely a good weapon. But again, is it going to save us from fascism? Mm-hmm. It's yeah. right around the corner, isn't it? And I've also heard this argument that humor is sort of like diffusing. I don't remember where, who I was talking to about this or where I was reading this. But um, this this argument that like, um, ha- the amount of like lampooning of Trump that's going on is actually mm-hmm. in some ways not the best thing like it's like yes use that to a degree like let's let's use humor to uh, alleviate some of that frustration that we're feeling um, it's a great tool for that and it, it always has been you know humor has always yeah. been a, a, a great tool for dealing with like especially like political frustrations um yeah. oh and i oh but i oh sorry, sorry. no 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 yeah <laughs> go ahead. yeah um no and humor is really important oh this gets into like everything we were talking about yeah. <laughs> humor uh humor humor is a great way to unite with people that already agree with you yeah first of all and it's a great way to break the tension and like oh my gosh we're living in a dystopian hellscape but haha look at the orangutan um by which I'm picturing Trump. Anyway, right, of course. Sorry. <laughs> uh, and, and that's great. However, you have to recognize that the more we do that, the more we're alienating people yes. who feel that we're mocking them. Right. Right? If someone it's has kind voted of an insult like in a general way. Someone right? who voted for okay. Trump might say, look, I don't agree with the policies um, that are happening right now, but all these people on the other side are making fun of me. They're calling me stupid. They're calling me ignorant. Racist, they're, yeah. they're comparing me to an orangutan, you know, or the person that I voted for to an orangutan. Um, and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, screw them. Uh, it, it can make them dig even more into their ideological That's uh, true. Yeah. position. Um, so humor can be a great tool for uniting people, but it can also divide people in, in ways that, Uh, may not be helpful to the cause overall, like you were saying, Emily. Right, yeah. That's a really good point that I think I do more so than I think. 
and I think you, you're you have a really good point um, where how I how it could totally divide someone because you right. are kind of pointedly making fun even though you're making fun of that person you're making fun of everything that that person uh, felt like they believed yeah and then too right. when we when we make fun of him I mean that's like if you look at it, like how he got elected um, a lot of what the the sort of left media was doing was just like totally discounting him like ah oh, what a ridiculous clown yeah. like there's no way and like not taking him seriously as a threat and not paying attention to like okay but what what is like what are his followers saying and like what are he's got this huge surge behind him like let's pay closer attention there was uh they're putting their heels in more and more mm-hmm. i mean the people that are yeah. were into him when they voted for him all of this is making them just like completely dig their heels in and they're double downing on the fact that they voted for trump right instead right. of saying and oh so, <laughs> yeah and, and i think and we need to be um you know as people who oppose him uh be more circumspect about how how we do that because yeah. You know, there there might have been lots of uh, Democrats, for example, who disagreed with Obama's foreign policy, or didn't um, like Hillary Clinton, or didn't like Hillary Clinton. Um, either one, but I mean, in the, the case I want to make is that you know, if you you might not have agreed with Obama's uh, drone program, mm. for instance, but if you see uh, the Republicans posting pictures of him as a monkey or something, and I granted that has more racial. Uh, yes, connotations than than doing it to Trump, but but I think the point stands. It's going to make you even more like, no, Obama was great. Right? How dare you speak about how how dare you yeah. represent him in this right. cartoonish way? Right. Instead of um, me he's, actually he's, judging his like his actions and me actually pushing back on that particular policy, now I'm a hundred percent even more behind Obama and everything he does because of that. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and I, yeah, absolutely. And there's a, there's a, there's a danger in that when we mm-hmm. you know start relating to our political parties like sports teams, um, you know, and instead of looking at the issues one by one, we just it's an all or nothing mentality because then you can't criticize Trump on a certain issue without people saying, well, he's my team. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, and and there there's a real danger. There, there's a real danger in that. Mm-hmm. And I think we're we're seeing the fruits of that. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately. No, I think absolutely. And it just further perpetuates this this idea that there's like there's only two sides, right? Yeah. There's teams. There's two teams. Yeah. And they're against each yeah, other. It's, yeah. It's that's us or true. them. Right, you know, exactly. If, if, it's, if it's us or them, um that and that use of humor can be very strategic and it can mm-hmm. Yeah, and it can also undermine the point that you're trying to make, you mm-hmm. know, if if what you're really concerned about is, uh, you know, what Trump is doing as far as the Supreme Court, as far as uh, the border, as far as um, these international trade deals and things like that, then it might relieve some tension to post, you know, a, a funny meme about him. But is that really distracting from the fact that, oh, my gosh, our Constitution is being dismantled before our eyes? Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. are we like... Is it is it always a good idea to joke when the constant when the the stakes are so high? Right. Exactly. Yeah. Is that it 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 sort of detracts attention from 
by by using humor to like minimize him you're also using humor to minimize the threat that he poses the real threat right at the same time you know it's humor is important yeah humor unites people Absolutely. <laughs> humor is an, is an important pressure valve social pressure valve i mean it's what i do with the sisters of perpetual indulgence you mm-hmm. know um we deal every day with people who are homeless or facing terminal illness um and we make them laugh and smile and we help them mm. that humor, humor does have a social purpose yeah yeah it's just you got it's 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 tough it's you think about all those movies back in the day where they would have kind of those pre-reels, you know, and and the Shirley Temple movies, you know, all those things that kind of would make people feel a little bit better about a dark period in history, you know, and they all yeah. had kind of, they gave you a little bit of warm and fuzzy. Mm-hmm. Oh, that yeah. Shirley Temple. <laughs> who, be- <laughs> who became a senator. Did she really? Mm-hmm. I didn't Shirley know Temple didn't Black. Mm-hmm. Really? Yep. Oh. Yeah. Cool. So, how about those crab boils? Crawfish. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, 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 unfortunately, the crawfish season has ended, so I I've done my last uh, crawfish review for this season. But um, we'll be back again next year. How many did you do? Do you know? I, I think it was. Oh my gosh, maybe fifteen, somewhere between fifteen and twenty. Yeah, that's a lot. That is a lot. Are I there love, are there big differences between crawfish. each crawfish boil? Um, I was telling Kim about this, yes, and she was absolutely. like, "She was like, why does it necessitate different reviews? Aren't they all the same?" And I was like, "No, they're oh, not, because no, I've been following no, them. And I want. No. <laughs> I need to come to I New love, Orleans. I love that, that people who are you mean New Orleans are looking at the crawfish reviews. Yeah, um, but yeah, no, there, there's a big difference. You know, I, I most boils start with the holy trinity of salt, cayenne, and lemon, mm-hmm. um, but there are that's what you boil it in but different chefs or cooks add different things to that pot that the crawfish boil in it could be pineapple or mushrooms or brussels sprouts sausage meatballs dumplings i mean i've seen people throw in a whole rabbit or uh you know duck duck livers like alligator people get creative with it um so there's there's a there's a big difference you know there's also how the crawfish are prepared. I mean, I, I can't believe you guys are interested in this, but yeah. Yeah, sure. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so what, what we did have you a really have a diverse show. Yeah. We've talked about a lot of different topics. <laughs> I can't wait for you to put together the, um, uh, the, the title for mm-hmm. the show and the little summary. Yeah. I know. I mean, we do, we do talk about snacks here and there and it's, yeah. and it's oh, something that I think. Oh, maybe this would be a good guest it, snack segment. Yeah. It yeah. just brings people together. Like food uh, is, is always such a bring people together kind of thing. And that is something that universally, it doesn't matter where people are, even our lovely incels out there, our, our lonely, sad incels. Uh, I bet and, they. You know, I wish they would just go to a crawfish boil. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> because there's nothing. And y'all aren't from Louisiana, but if a crawfish boil is the ultimate community experience, you don't you don't sit at a table by yourself and eat crawfish. Um, <laughs> I, I think if you're half the time you're going to be in someone's backyard and there aren't going to be any table any chairs, you're just going to have a picnic table covered in newspaper and you, you dump out the crawfish and everybody just goes in nice. uh, standing around the table um or if you see like most of my posts on my boil it's 
everybody's just sitting on the curb, on the sidewalk or in, yeah. on a stoop. Um, and, you, and you hang out, you talk. It's a very social experience, very community-oriented experience. And nothing brings people together like crawfish. Let me tell you, I've had... I've had good crawfish sitting next to Republicans and <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and misogynists. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, it, but, but you're but you're there and you're you're all just sucking heads together, you know. <laughs> we may have found our episode title. <laughs> I mentioned that this summer we're doing like some sort of different stuff. One of the things is that our friend Raphael is doing a guest segment on our show with us called um, Let's Talk About Snacks, Baby. And uh, <laughs> yeah, and it's we just we do they're like mini episodes that kind of come between yeah. our regular weekly episodes, especially after like the heavier ones. Mm-hmm. We'll do like a little Raphael snack installment. Um, so I, I like that this could be like a guest snack installment. That's exactly right. <laughs> about the crawfish. Oh. So did you have a favorite? Like, did you have, when you went through all of these, is there one that sticks in your mind as like the favorite boil? Or do you feel like because of the community aspect of it, that that might taint their favorite being like your best hangout during your, your crawfish boil? Boil. Okay, well, just just to be diplomatic, I'm going to give you my two favorites. Okay. Because my my very favorite is the weekly. No, well, my my favorite weekly boil is at Cosmos Bar, um, and it's because it happens every Tuesday. You can sort of expect to see uh, a lot of familiar faces there, and it's a good solid boil. You know, you're going to leave happy, um, and it's and it's affordable, and you're going to have a good time. However. I recently attended a boil that blew my mind. I'm going to tell you about it. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was at the opening. A, a good friend of mine uh, has just opened a shop called Crescent City Conjure um, in New Orleans, which does uh, hoodoo, conjure, and witchcraft supplies for, for that community. And for their grand opening, they hosted a crawfish boil that was free, which is a, a common Ooh. thing that businesses will do. Yeah, but they, nice. the, the idea is to feed the community, to bring people in, but to feed the community. Um, and at this boil, they had uh, sausage and pineapple uh, and meatballs in the boil. They had perched the crawfish really well, which means they had let them um, swim around in, in some, some clean, clean water, water for a while to sort of uh, get all the, the gross stuff out of them, mm-hmm. which, which is just like a nice thing to yeah. do uh and they were it was late season um which usually means that the crawfish are going to be very large but very tough like hard to peel but somehow this chef worked his magic and these were like the biggest juiciest crawfish i've ever had and they tasted like pineapple and sausage Ooh. it was it was gorgeous mm. it was just it was just a beautiful that boil um and it's very unusual to find sausage in a free boil. You'll know that the locals will talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a rare ingredient. Ooh. In a free boil. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it's hard to find sausage in a pay boil sometimes because, yeah. you know, that's a premium ingredient. Sure. But, uh, 
but yeah, so I have to give a shout out to to Crescent City Conjure for that boil. Mm. The one that intrigued me the most that I remember seeing is there was one with like Thai spices in oh, the boil. Yes. Oh, oh man, the man. Cajun boils. Okay, I might have to. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, so a lot of people don't, if you're not from the area, you might not know that New Orleans has a very large Vietnamese population. I did uh, and, and from this culture has emerged something called Viet Cajun cuisine. Oh, cool. Which is a, so, you know, New Orleans is already known for French Creole, sort of the, the French and Southern mm-hmm. um, and African-American melting pot of food. So then we're going to just add some Vietnamese traditional food into that uh and when it comes to the vietnamese boils there have been a few that i've been to in the city that have just blown my mind they use things like thai basil and lemongrass and bamboo and enoki mushroom and uh chinese sausage um which is a little different than like an andouille sausage uh and oh if i could ever figure out how to make that it would like probably make my life. Yeah, complete. that's the one. I want that one. <laughs> Do you have a, are these... And that one, that one, those were rare. I only went to two or three Viet Cajun boils this yeah. this year, and but I always seek them out. They're <sighs> they're definitely. I gotta find them. Oh, that they're, sounds delicious. That. I'm so hungry right now. Me too. I think we're gonna have to finish this up so I can go. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anna, you've been wonderful. This was great. Thank you so much. Oh, I'm, I'm impressed with how like you still managed to find a thread that somehow <laughs> all three of these things. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it worked. That's our skill. I think if we have, if we have one, it's... community online. Yeah. Real yeah. Yeah. Queen of the segways. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I can't thank you enough. Um, Hopefully, uh, we'll see you in real life at a crab. Oh, my, I keep saying crab because I'm an East Coaster. Yeah. At a crawfish boil. Crab boils are delicious, too. Yeah, that's a good thing also. Kim lived in Charleston for a long time, and that's like crab boils, I think, are big there. Yeah, Yeah, and the oyster roasts. Ooh. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Cluster oysters. Don't make me hungry now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for uh, having me on, on the show. It's, it's great to talk to you. And Emily, it's great to hear your voice again. You too. Finally, the IRL puppets have arrived on Bear Island. We sailed with the Norwegian Coast Guard out from Tromso Harbor, into the Barents Sea, and arrived on Bear Island on June 15th. It has been busy days for the new crew of nine people, an Alaskan Husky and the two IRL puppets. We have now taken over the Meteorological Weather Station to live and work here for six months. There are no people living on this island and there are no infrastructure at all. The island is protected as a natural reserve. It is mainly populated by seabirds. There are millions of them scattered all around the steep cliffs surrounding the entire island. We have seen common eider, common myrrh and Atlantic puffin. There are polar foxes lurking around stealing eggs from the birds' nests but I haven't been able to get pictures of them yet. 
The first weeks have been spent learning how to operate the station. Mainly working shifts in the radio room where we monitor marine and air traffic and giving weather updates for the Barents Sea. I will keep you updated on this Arctic adventure in the time coming. All the best, Uncle Traveling Niels. Oh. Uh -huh.